0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here.
1: Beloved, our reading today comes to us from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapters 18 and 19 of the book of Acts, we learn that the Apostle Paul paid a brief visit to Ephesus on his second missionary journey, and returned on his third missionary journey to spend between two and three years there. The city of Ephesus is located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a major capital city in New Testament times within the Roman Empire, a center of commerce and trade, and home to what has been called one of the Seven Wonders of the World, the mighty Temple of Artemis the remains of which can still be seen to this very day. Paul's time in Ephesus is usually dated in the early to mid 50 CE, and it is believed by many scholars that he actually wrote 1 Corinthians from that location. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I have to tell you, is unique in that apart from a typical opening and closing, the document itself reads more like a sermon or a theological treatise intended to be proclaimed preached to a community of believers. As we shall hear this morning, the letter's rhetoric serves as praise of the Lord and his people, Jews and Gentiles, united in and through Christ, and emphasizes themes of unity and peace in Christ in all settings. Paul's words of reconciliation and unity indeed speak across the ages to everyone today. Let us hear now these words from Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 18 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us, abolishing the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access to one spirit, to the Father. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
2: Friends, before we move into our message for this morning, just a quick note here to give you an update on our Sowing the Seeds pledge campaign as we wrap up our pledge efforts uh, for the coming year. As of this morning, we have received 505 pledges totaling $2.1 million. And um, that means that we're well on our way to meeting our projected annual budget for 2023 of about $3.9 million. I'd like to personally invite you to, uh, to join me and Lori in helping us uh, get to our goals for next year. We project that right now we have, based on year-to-year comparisons, still another 150 families who have yet to submit their pledges for 2023. And we know there is so much going on in your lives this uh, season with shopping and traveling and planning, but please save me the opportunity of giving a stewardship sermon on Christmas Eve. by getting your pledges in if you haven't yet pledged. You can do so uh, sometime today after church. Maybe go online as I have done and Lori have done. We, we pledged online. You can do that at the uh, URL that's listed there. And uh, know that every size uh, pledge of every amount uh, counts as we move toward the finish line. For those of you who have already pledged, please know how deeply grateful and humbled I am to be your pastor and to lead this wonderful church We have great plans going forward for 2023. You've already heard about some of the outreach. You've heard our great choir. All of these things happen because of your generosity, and we're grateful. Let's take a moment to pray. Oh, God, as we come now to hear your word, open our ears to hear your word, and open our eyes to see your truth, open our minds to dream new dreams, open our hearts to be changed by your grace. Amen. So do you have a secret list? I don't mean a secret Santa kind of list. I mean the kind of list that has the unwritten, unspoken names of all the people in your life whom for some reason or other you are pretty sure ought to get a lump of coal in their stocking for Christmas. (laughs) You know, people that you simply don't particularly like. And people with whom you just seem to have this adversarial relationship. Admit it. You've got that list. You're in church, so let's be honest. Uh, Jesus doesn't judge. Um, you got that list, at least in your mind. We won't judge you for it around here. You, you don't have to feel bad about it. Unless I'm on your list. <laughs> and that would be super awkward, wouldn't it? I mean... <laughs> Right? Just moments ago, you're thinking, I don't really like that preacher. And then the preacher calls you out on it. That is just weird. It's like he already knew, right? But I'm pretty sure that no one ever puts the pastor on their list. I want you to pull up that list right now in your mind. The names and faces of those who are just really hard to like. People who are difficult to trust. People who are simply impossible to share the same spaces with. Maybe there's a past, there's a story, there's a betrayal, a lingering misunderstanding between the two of you. Uh, The nemesis at the office that you go out of your way to avoid. Or the neighborhood bully that you haven't spoken to in years. Ever since that incident no one talks about. Or that one parent who repeatedly and unrepentantly cuts you off in a student drop-off lane at the middle school every single day. We all have our lists. And while the names of those on your list may be different from those on mine, one strategy that we all share in common as humans. The one way to deal with our adversaries that we share is as old as humanity itself. We build walls in order to maintain the peace. Isn't that ironic? We build walls in order to maintain the peace. Or at least to appease or obscure the unpeace that exists between us. Walls of silence, walls of pride and arrogance and pretense, walls of defense, avoidance, uh, walls to keep our adversaries out, walls to protect ourselves and never have to leave. The oldest known defensive wall ever discovered was built by the earliest known human civilization, the Mesopotamians in the year 2100 BCE. And as we know in the modern world, we're told that the only man-made object visible from space is the Great Wall of China. We humans have this uh, enduring penchant for building walls. Why? Maybe you remember that great poem by Robert Frost, Mending Wall. The poem is about these two farmers who meet up in a field one day in the springtime They meet up at this stone wall that separates their two farms. And as they walk along the wall, each on their own side, they are restacking the stones that have fallen during the harsh winter. And while rebuilding the wall that separates their fields, one of them has this sudden revelation. Why do we even need a wall in the first place? And his neighbor from the other side of the wall says because good fences make good neighbors. But still, the other um, understands that farmers only really need walls to keep their cows from going to the side, and because neither of them have cows, uh, there he understands there's nothing really to be kept in or kept out. Except, of course, each other. And so he says famously in that great poem, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down, he says. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Look, not all walls are bad. In Israel, the Western Wall, once built to defend the ancient city of Jerusalem, is today a hallowed destination for countless pilgrims who come daily to place their written prayers in the sacred cracks between those massive stones. It is a breathtaking experience to behold. In Washington, D.C., the Vietnam Memorial Wall It's constructed of 70 black granite panels bearing the names of 58,000 American soldiers who died in battle. And it's a somber reminder of the great tragedy of war. Years ago, I found my own uncle's name on that wall, and there I wondered why and what if. Now in Seattle, Washington, the great market theater gum wall is one colossally germ, germy mistake of a wall. It's several inches thick, it's 15 feet tall, it's 50 feet long, and it's covered with colorful wall wads of bubble gum. And that is a breathtaking, nauseating experience. Even COVID's like, mm, I'm not going there, right? <laughs> Why do we need walls? When each of us knows deep in our hearts that It's simply not true that good fences make good neighbors. Walls may make for the absence of conflict between people, but they never, never make for peace between them. The Israeli separation barrier, as it's called, is over 400 miles long. It surrounds, among other things, the great city of Bethlehem, and it essentially imprisons Palestinian peoples, peoples who have lived there since before the birth of Christ. And today, Israeli soldiers armed with automatic weapons and tear gas keep watch from their towers over Palestinian people whom they regard not as neighbors, but as enemies. And if Jesus were born in Bethlehem today, he would likely never be permitted to even leave the city. Some of our most fortified walls that we build today aren't even physical structures. The most impenetrable walls we're apt to build are constructed of ideology and politics and economics and nationality and culture and race and class and tribe and gender. What is the difference between Kiev and Kiev? They're the same place. But it's where you come from and what you believe. It's your nationality and your politics that will determine how you pronounce that place. But maybe some of the most enduring walls that we are apt to build and those that we're most apt to encounter in this world are religious ones. Religions are notorious for building walls. Walls to separate the worthy from the unworthy, the pure from the defiled, the righteous from the unrighteous, the believer from the infidel. Walls that divide the lost from the found, the chosen from the unchosen, truth from errancy, gays from straits, saints from sinners, the saved from the irredeemable. And I thought this week about each of you and the utter miracle it is that you are even here today in church. How many walls, how many religious walls have you encountered over the course of your life that have tried to keep you out of church? How many religious walls have you had to climb sometimes just to keep on believing? How many walls have you had to scale just to hold out hope that there might actually be a spiritual community, a church, without any walls? A church where you could be accepted and where you felt belonged and where you were safe. Well, there's an alternate vision in the Bible about that kind of spiritual community. And you have to get beyond and behind all the rules and legalism and tribalism of the Bible to locate this important, compelling vision. It doesn't get a lot of exposure or attention these days because too many Christians just love their walls. On the whole, Christians are better at building walls than they are at dismantling them. But there's this tenacious biblical vision that wants to tear them down. It's a vision that speaks of the universality of God's love, the inclusive love for all people. And ironically, it is a vision preached by none other than the one person who began his spiritual journey as a wall-building religious zealot. His name was Paul. Paul was this expert in religious exclusivism. He was a pro at, at keeping and interpreting the ancient laws of Moses. And he became so zealous about his faith that he began to hunt down and persecute the earliest followers of Jesus. And one day, as he was out hunting down some Christians on the road to Damascus, he was knocked off his horse and he was temporarily blinded. In the days that followed, Paul experienced this extraordinary conversion that set him on a spiritual journey away from religious exclusivism toward this grace-filled inclusive understanding of God. And Paul came to see God's purposes in Jesus Christ as being much bigger than his own tribe. In fact, those purposes were as big as the world itself. A purpose that had no walls or boundaries. It's understand that God said Jesus not just to love people who happen to be lucky enough to win the DNA lottery, but to welcome all people regardless of their DNA. And along this spiritual journey of transformation, Paul, he had to himself scale this massive religious wall that had once protected him and separated him from others. And by the time of his death, he was saying and writing things that were super radical for his day and still are today. Things like what we read in Ephesians today when he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and he is our peace he's broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making for peace some scholars argue that it wasn't actually Paul who wrote Ephesians but how can you not read this particular passage and think otherwise These words are no less powerful regardless of who wrote them. They are the whole gospel in a nutshell. The whole gospel. They reflect Paul's personal conversion journey toward radical inclusion and our own. All the people who had once been on Paul's secret list, Gentiles and Christians, had because of Christ become his very siblings or kin in a new family. Paul discovers that the love of God could no longer be contained in a wall. And in Christ, God is creating a new humanity where all the wounds and all the violence and all the the things that separate us are reconciled. Uh, That's what the cross is all about for Paul. In modern America, most of the time we think of the cross as this privileged symbol of an exclusive religion. But the cross is a symbol of what it truly looks like when God's arms are stretched so wide that the whole world can be gathered in. Peace, a new humanity, enemies made into friends, adversaries made into allies. One of the most extraordinary witnesses to this new humanity of Paul's vision happened on Christmas Eve 1914. The First World War had begun five months earlier. It was the deadliest of all wars with new machinery, new ammunitions. It was the most efficient way to kill people. And hundreds and thousands of British and French and German soldiers faced each other on a front that extended from the border of France to Belgium. And the conditions were horrible for both sides. Troops hunkered down into deep trenches that were cut into soggy, muddy soil lighted by candles and flashlight. And It was a constant struggle just to keep the mud walls from collapsing and flooding. And less than a hundred yards away from your trench was the enemy trench. Each side was protected by rolls of barbed wire. And in between the barbed wire was what was called no man's land. And each side posted snipers to shoot anything that moved in the opposite trench. Hand grenades were tossed, and artillery shells were lobbed, and troops occasionally charged up out of the trenches toward the other trench, most often with terrible results. The trenches were close enough that the troops could actually hear the enemy's voices, and occasionally the enemy would shout ethnic slurs at the other. And as the first Christmas approached, troops from both sides received packages From home to boost their morale. The British troops received cigarettes, pipe tobacco, a greeting card from the king, plum pudding, Cadbury chocolates. The German Christmas package contained tobacco, pipes, sausage, and beer. (laughs) But the German government also sent shipments of Christmas trees to the troops in the trenches. And as the sun moved across the sky on December 24th, 1914, something strange began to happen. The shooting just stopped. And no one issued any orders. As the late afternoon dusk turned to darkness, British troops peering through the gloom saw the most amazing thing. Christmas trees with lighted candles sitting on the parapets of every trench. And up and down the line, German troops displayed these Christmas trees from their government, displaying them so that their British counterparts could see them. And then a voice came out of the German side, over across no man's land, the words, a gift is coming now, it was shouted. The British expected a grenade, but instead what they got was a boot filled with sausages and chocolates. They kept the beer. The British scrambled to find a plum pudding and a Christmas card from the king to send back to the Germans. And then the Germans began to sing first patriotic and military songs, and then later, as it grew eerily quiet from behind their lighted Christmas trees across the darkness, they began to sing Stille Nacht, Nacht," Silent Night, Holy Night. Up and down the front, the singing spread, all is calm, all is bright. And the British troops were spellbound. Some of them began to sing. And as the sun rose on Christmas Day, signs emerged from both sides. These real signs. You no shoot. We no shoot. And soldiers walked out of their trenches and met in no man's land. They met in the middle. They shook hands awkwardly. They exchanged Christmas greetings up and down the line, spreading north and south, a spontaneous Christmas truce. They exchanged chocolates and candies and sausages, puddings, and then insignia from their uniforms, brass buttons, belt buckles, lots of singing. In fact, at several places up and down the front, British and German troops played soccer together. It's known as the Christmas truce. Paul McCartney actually wrote a song about that, about that event. It's called Pipes of peace. The truce, the great truce of Christmas 1914, it continued through Christmas night is the second day until it slowly deteriorated. The war went on, 6,000 people a day died for 46 more months. In World War I, the so-called war to end all wars, it raged on for three more Christmases. And there was never such a truce again. In 2005, a Scottish soldier at the age of 109 recalled what he had witnessed that day as a soldier. And he described that Christmas day, 1914, as, quote, a short peace in a terrible war. It is a vision of one new humanity, enemies made into friends adversaries made into allies peace the ancient prophets call it shalom the bringing together of opposites peace is not the absence of conflict it's the reconciliation of opposites and that it is so often fleeting that is not god's choice it's always always ours god's choice is that we who were once far off would be brought near by christ Who has broken down the dividing walls, the hostility between us, creating in himself one new humanity in place of two. Our takeaways for today, good fences only make for good enemies. And with Christ at the center, a wall is never necessary. And on the cross, God's arms are stretched so wide that the whole world can be gathered in and embraced.